1950, an 18 year old fullback from Balmain signed with Valleys to see if he could make it in the BRL. He played one trial and after that game never played anything other than an A grade fixture for the rest of his career. He was a very good fullback, but he brought with him a revolutionary goal kicking style. He would kick the ball from the, with the toe of his boot off a mound of earth that was kicked up and fashioned to cradle the ball for the goal kick. As Valley's fullback, he made a name for himself as a tough tackling last line of defence. Some would say illegal tackling last line of defence, but he rarely let an opponent get past him. He was an outstanding goal kicker who holds the record for the most points scored in the BRL, for the most points scored in a single season, and for the most points scored in a single game. He played in 11 semi-final series over 14 years at the Diehards. He played in five grand finals and won two premierships, including an undefeated premiership with Valleys in 1955. He played for Brisbane, 10 games for Queensland, and a test for Australia at the SCG where he kicked five goals in a win over New Zealand. He took on the coaching role at Valleys while still playing and remained there after his retirement in 1964. He was successful at Valleys coaching as well, until replaced by Henry Holloway in 1967. After 17 years at Valleys and being out of the game since 1966, it was, to say the least, a surprise to see that youngster from Balmain, Norm Pope, once again prowling the sidelines as a coach in the BRL, but this time he was coaching at Western Suburbs. As always, Norm Pope was nothing but successful. He brought with him Cole O'Brien as the trainer, and West were the fittest club in the league, and ran away with the minor premiership. While coaching at West was shocking enough for the old-timers at Valleys, during the season Pope also donned the red and black hoops and played a game for the Panthers. In a spur-of-the-moment decision, Pope grabbed some gear and took the field against Winner Manley during an injury crisis at the Panthers. He said one game was enough. You're listening to BRL Moments in Time, a BRL history podcast, and Norm Pope playing with West's that was 1972. G'day everybody, I'm Chris Leeson and I'm here as always with Dave Teekle. Dave, how are you going today? Yeah, I'm fine again, Chris. It's good. Uh, this is episode 10 of season one of BRL Moments in Time. We're pretty much halfway through after this one's finished. Today we'll have a chat about the players who made the game that what it was in 1972. So let's kick it off. So I guess the best place to start when talking about the players of 72 is with our major award winners. And the Rothmans medal was awarded on Monday night after the final round of fixtures. In a presentation that was neither flash nor prepared, BRL officials arrived at the Banyo home of Marty Scanlon of Valleys to tell him that he'd won the award. Scanlon dressed quickly and raced off to BRL headquarters where he was the recipient of the Rothmans medal and a toast of champagne. Scanlon, who scored 26 points, beat Cole Weiss of Brothers in second place on 20 points and then East Stes Morris and West Nev MacDonald in equal third, followed a point behind by Ian Tiny of Redcliffe Peter Hall of Norths, and then Alan Curry of Easts and Jim Murphy of Souths. And John Grant was voted by the Courier Mail's Jack Reardon as his player of the year. Yeah, and then he also gave raps to West for the way that they played throughout the year, particularly to Richie Twist, Kev Denman and Wayne Stewart. He gave South's Jim Murphy a rap and then said, The wonderful third round form of Des Morris, the consistency of Marty Scanlon, John Lang and Cole Weiss helped to make it a memorable season. Yeah, and I guess that uh, speaks to what we're always saying about those players who play well every single week but don't always get the mentions in the write-ups. He also said it was unfortunate that the 1972 season brought the end of a career of one of the game's great little men, lamenting the retirement of Valley's Ross Trophy. Well, Chris, let's look at each of the clubs in turn to see if we can highlight some players who might fit into the BRL Moments in Time Hall of Fame. Firstly, we'll start at the top of the compass point with Norths. John Brown starting to fall off the pace a little and was dropped at one stage during the season. But Johnny Brown was a champion and he came back to again start in first grade until that fateful match against Wests when he had his jaw broken in two places. John Brown also retired midway through 1972. Ex-Ipswich winger Peter Vitteroni did a good job playing lock. Closer to the action was a good place to be, as his speed was still with him and getting the ball in his hands more often meant he was more damaging. 
Peter Hall was the mainstay of North's team and should be remembered as such. Nick Geiger had a good season. It was his first in the big time and he showed some of the form that would eventually take him to Australian representation. Ex-Redcliffe forward Daryl Shue missed some games due to injury but had a good season otherwise. He was very busy and when on the field gave superb service to North's. Glenn Harrison showed he can play second row and centre. He was big, strong and fast and North's missed him when he wasn't on the field. Hassel Rolf showed that he could mix it well in first grade, helping North selectors deal with the who will replace Johnny Brown question. Well, let's move around the compass point and check out the Tigers at Eastern Suburbs. East backline was consistently good all season. John Eels, John Atkin, Alan Curry, Jeff Denman, Butch Pearce, Lee Hutchinson, backed up by the consistent goal kicking of Howard Fullerton. They got plenty of opportunities to show their wares at the back of outstanding forward play. But the elusiveness and speed of these young players was a constant throughout the season and certainly helped propel them to premiership glory. East forwards were also good. It was hard to go past the guys who get the mentions in 1972. Jeff Fife, who was more than just a crack field goal exponent. Fife's backing up and ever-present defence fingered him as a premier back rower in the game. Kev Stevens and Boris Crescini showed that they were also up there with the best of them as they played week after week. Stevens particularly was having a good year in 72. But the pick of the forwards at Langlands Park was Des Morris and John Lang. Morris was damaging whether he had the ball or was prowling the attacking line looking for unsuspecting victims to crunch with his powerful defence. John Lang was a different player. He was busy in midfield, tackling everything that moved, wearing an opponent's jersey. His low tackling was a feature of his game, and he'd make many of them through the season. Lang was a prototype modern hooker forward for today's game, plugging gaps in the middle of the field and regularly sniping at a dummy half to present defensive pressure on the opposition, while always giving superb service to his halves. We'll continue to move around the compass, and next is Souths. John Grant was outstanding, particularly in the first and third rounds. In the second round, his club form suffered a bit while he was playing for Queensland. He was also excellent in the Queensland versus New South Wales World Cup trial as well. That good form continued when he went to England with the World Cup team. Graham Atherton had a great second round particularly. Without Grant there to take advantage of Atherton's generalship, he had to do it all himself, and he did it with aplomb. Jim Murphy played for Australia, and his consistency throughout the season showed. Mick Cowell was another whose consistency was excellent throughout the season. Greg Vivas came on well, and in the second part of the season, he really showed his class developing. Souths had plenty of good players during 1972. Asali Batabasaga and Asaya Volavola continued their form when called on. Of their big off-season recruits, Wayne Head and Gary Dobrik contested the fullback spot without setting the world on fire, although Dobrik was selected to play for Queensland. Kim McCaskill was good, Judd Baker had a good end of season, but the pick of their new players was probably ex-rugby winger Peter Moore, who had speed to burn and used it to great effect after putting his elusive skills to put himself into space. 1972 minor premiers West hardly had a bad player. Kev Denman, Eric Robinson, Wayne Stewart, Yogi Thompson, John White, Roger Kuhn, Nev McDonald were all consistently mentioned throughout the year as playing well. Richie Twist had another great season until that same game when Johnny Brown broke his jaw. Immediately after running over Brown and inadvertently breaking his jaw, Twist was set upon by North's players, and after the brain damage suffered by the tackle he received, Twist sat the next 18 months out of the game. Ian Robson, Stu McAllister for the first half of the season, and Ray McCarran were the pick of the forwards. It's hard to reconcile West not even making the grand final, but without Twist, they really lost something special in attack. It didn't matter against most teams, but it stood out that something was missing when they were playing the top teams. Brothers had a positive season and made the finals. Fullback and sometimes winger Ian Douth was a point-scoring machine, but it wasn't just about scoring points. Douth could play as well and set up plenty of supports as well as score a try himself. He was Brothers' top point scorer with 150 points. Graham Cronk was a top performer in the Brothers' back line. He didn't score as many tries as he had in the past, but he was certainly a top contributor. Barry Dowling returned from injury in the second half of the season and he was outstanding. Dowling was a really good player with plenty of pace and evasiveness as well as the ability to put his supports in a hole. Brothers certainly played better with him than without him. Brothers captain coach Cole Weiss was Brothers' best player. He scored highly in the Courier Mail best and fairest, but each week he was, was as reliable as the sun setting behind the Frank Burke stand at Lang Park when a Sunday afternoon game had just been completed. 
A young David Wright was good throughout the year, but he was great through the third round. Len Dittmar was another who played well throughout, but who really lifted his game in the second half of the year. And to top off the players making brothers run through the latter part of the year, better to watch, Wayne Abdi was another whose second half of the season really stood out. The grand finalist Valley's had another great year and along with it plenty of first class player performances. Up until he was injured in week 12, Norm Clark had been a standout player. And after the injury, the gifted and elusive Alan Mills stepped in and made sure that Valley's lost nothing in the fullback position. Plenty of players had to warm up into the season to get the best out of themselves. Jerry Fitzpatrick was one of these. He was good early on, but he was terrific as the season progressed. Ron Gurnett played well regardless of where he played. As Valleys tried to replace Mick Retchless, Gurnett stuck, played in the backs early in the season, but once shipped to his favourite lock position, he was outstanding again. Scanlon won the Rothmans medal and was third in the count for the Courier-Mail best and fairest. Simply put, Marty Scanlon was the glue that held Valleys together, and he played so well it helped everyone around him to play better as well. And one of those guys who played better because they were near Scanlon was Ross Trelfo. He was great all year. Tony Perkins was a tower of strength during the first half of the year, and big Bruce McLeod took over the tower of strength mantle during the second half of the year. John Crilly, Hugh O'Doherty were two who played extremely well throughout the season. While the two big men, Russell Hughes and John McCabe, shared the, their time in the spotlight. Both were really firing when the season was in full swing. Hughes because he'd gotten into game rhythm, but McCabe because he'd just returned from injury and was just hitting his straps during the third round of footy. Winner Manley struggled for success in 1972, but there were a couple of players in particular who presented a wonderful string of form together. Prop forward Ken Churchill had a wonderful run of games in the first half of the year. The other player to really impress from Winner Manley was winger Doug Kelly. He was Winner Manley's top try scorer, and as he played on the wing, it was more difficult to impress every week, but Kelly's consistently good games were strewn across the whole length of the season, so he had certainly acquitted himself well. Finally, Redcliffe had numerous players who impressed during 72. Their fullback Tony Obbs was a good performer. Centre and sometime fullback Howard Whitaker was another who played at a good level throughout the season. Peter Lease was always played well. With his speed and strength and elusiveness, he was to the fore again in 1972. Ray Higgs was another who performed well, just like Lease, every single week. Three of the best performers for Redcliffe were Steve Creer, who used pace, guile and skill to impress, but the back row expertise of Ian Tiny and Rod Halley was the place where Redcliffe shone the most. With Ray Higgs in that triumvirate, they showed exceptional class in their performances throughout the season. So with those names out there, Chris, this year is the hardest year we've had trying to narrow it down to just five shortlisted players. Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, we can go by guys who scored the most mentions in match reviews. And if we did that, Des Morris, Marty Scanlon and Cole Weiss would be the first three. And then we'd have Mick Cowell, Hugh O'Doherty, Ross Trofo and Peter Hall next. And that's more than five, which we've done before, but there was always some way to connect them. And this is a bit random. Okay, well, if that doesn't work, we could go by the guys who had the best representative careers in 1972. Well, if we do that, it'll be Wayne Stewart, John Grant, Jim Murphy, all of those guys played for Queensland. Gary Dobrik, Lee Hutchinson, Richie Twist, John Lang, Ray McCarran, Steve Creer, Wayne Bennett, Peter Hall and Arthur Connell as well. <laughs> okay, I get the feeling we're making it difficult. <laughs> yeah, so I told you it would be hard this year to find just five gears, five guys. So remember, throughout the year, we also had a lot of teams in the running for the semifinals, and that means a lot of guys were playing well a lot of the time. All right, so let's try looking at the guys who get those he-always-plays-well write-ups. Well, if we go with them, then we uh, shortlist just those guys. It'll be Ross Trolfo, Des Morris, John Lane, Cole Weiss, David Wright, Wayne Abdi, Marty Scanlon, Hugh O'Doherty, Peter Hall, Jim Murphy, John Grant, Graham Atherton, Greg Vivers, Nev McDonald, Arthur Connell, Rob Thompson, Ian Robson, Steve Creer, Ian Tiny, Peter Lease and Rod Halley. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> Okay, so fair enough, let's try mashing all of that together. The most consistent performer in match reports, coupled with representative participation, mashed up with those guys who always play well. All right, let's see who can make all three lists. Des Morris is one. He's a rock for East, uh, and he's a rock on which East built their success. So he's an easy one. He's the first guy on the list. Yeah, that works for me. And uh, what about Peter Hall as the next guy who's on all three lists? North's prop forward Peter Hall wasn't too flashy, 
And I know people like to put flashy players into a Hall of Fame, but the guys who play well all the time deserve to be recognised, and Peter Hall did play well all the time. Yeah, I'm more than comfortable with Peter Hall. Uh, he was near the top of the conversation every single year so far, but he's never made the shortlist, so let's add him here as someone who is a rep player, one of these guys who always plays well, and also a player highly ranked in the number of match reports. That's a good call. Yeah. There's no one else on all three lists, but Hugh O'Doherty was a reserve for Queensland, so we can go with Hugh as the third guy to be shortlisted. Yeah, he was often the bridesmaid to John Lang, but Hugh O'Doherty never played a bad game. He may lose a scrub count now and again, but his open field play was always top class, and he could steal the ball in a tackle two or three times a game to augment his scrum count. Yeah, that's right. Probably the one thing that people remember most about O'Doherty was the number of times he'd go into a tackle and come out with the ball. Mm. That gives us three blokes in, so the next two guys really need to be on the first and third lists. And they're the lists that we really speak to consistency throughout the 72 season. And the guys on both of those lists are Cole Weiss, Marty Scanlon and Ross Trolfo. Well, that's pretty easy. We can shortlist Cole Weiss, who was outstanding for Brothers. He was also extremely consistent being in the match report in all but five games. Yeah, that's a given. If Cole Weiss had played his entire career in Brisbane, I'm sure he'd be in the Hall of Fame. But because he played so long in the country before making the move to Brothers, he hasn't had as much of an opportunity to join these lists. So yeah, Cole Weiss can be added. So again, why don't we add Valley's halves pairing of Ross Trelfo and Marty Scanlon as our final player. Scanlon was superb in 1972 and probably should have been the first guy mentioned because he won the Rothmans medal. Yeah, that's probably true, but we took a different tack this week to mix it up a bit. I think we still ended up with the best guys that we could. And we can pair Marty and Ross Trelfo. He had so many accolades written about him, his place here is not out of place. Jack Reardon wrote at the end of the season that he had had a number of arguments with Trelfo about his tackling. Reardon believed he did too much of it, and Trelfo said he did what his team needed from him, to which Reardon commented that he probably sacrificed higher representative honours by playing tough like he did. As a young kid, there are a few players who stood out in my memory, and Ross Trolfo is definitely one of them. So I'm more than happy to have Ross added in there as well. <laughs> so we've done it again, Chris. Six <laughs> players on a Hall of Fame, which is only supposed to have five players in it. Yeah, but it's only shortlisting. We, ha- we will narrow it down and stick with ten by the end of the decade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that gives us East second rower Des Morris, North's prop Peter Hall, Valley's hooker Hugh O'Doherty, Brothers lock forward Cole Weiss, and Valley's halves Marty Scanlon and Ross Trolfo. There you have it. That's 1972. Thanks, Dave. That was uh, sound logic to play at play in there. It's a good mix it up. Uh, I think it would have worked out pretty well. Keep listening after we sign off for an interview with former North hooker Greg Fowler. Greg played in the 59, 60 and 61 uh, premiership teams with Norths. And in that 59 team, Clive Churchill was also a member of that team. So it'd be interesting to hear what Greg's got to say about that. Um, thanks very much for listening thanks very much to Dave Teagle for your help with this episode yeah absolute pleasure Chris if you enjoyed the podcast please jump on your platform that you listen to and give us a five star rating and a review so others can find us too don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes if you'd like to get in touch with us here at BRL Moments in Time you can contact us via our website or via our social media pages search for BRL Moments in Time on Facebook and on Instagram and get in contact with us there or our website, which is brl-momentsintime.com. This podcast was developed and produced on the lands of the Yagara, Yugara and Yagarapal people of the Itswich region. We acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional custodians. Keep listening and we'll get our conversation going with Greg Fowler. Hail the mighty tigers, giants in the golden black. They'll stand tall to face the attack. All their feet and their smart and their tactics always pull the rest. Tigers for them is the fittest and the best. Hail mighty tigers, hail mighty tigers, they'll never be to you won't let us down. For your fit and your smart and your tactics always pull the rest. Tigers for them is the fittest and the best. Least you are the greatest, always up there in the lead. Just watch them fall to your strength, skill and speed. As you fight and you strive to get those points and drop the score. So for the tigers that's here a mighty roar. Hail mighty tigers, hail mighty tigers. 
Welcome to the BRL Moments in Time interview for this week. Uh, today we sit down with former Norths hooker Greg Fowler. Uh, Greg played in the first three of North's premiership sides in their famous run of six in a row back in the 1960s. We'll start it in 59 through the 60s. So, good day, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good day, Chris. Thanks very much. It's That's, a pleasure. Yeah, good. Um, so, first of all, before we get into the footy side of things, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood, where you grew up, and when did footy start to play a part in your life? Uh, I grew up in uh, Virginia, which is on the north side of Brisbane. And I went to Virginia State School. My dad was a good cricketer and he uh, gave me a cricket bat when I was pretty young because he wanted me to be a cricketer. At school, I had a, started playing rugby league, so I got into rugby league and I think, much to his chagrin, he uh, <laughs> had to follow my football career rather than my cricket career. So, yes, my first uh, games of rugby league were played with uh, Virginia State School. OK. So... Um... You played at the, that primary school, I imagine. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, so, five yeah. stone seven. Five stone seven. <laughs> but in those days, the uh, they didn't have juniors that went all the way down to under sevens. They started around under fourteen or under fifteen. So, uh, when did you actually start playing club footy? Well, I started playing club footy in nineteen fifty-two, from memory, and I started with Norths and playing under fifteen right. for the northern suburbs because there were no other. Teams and Norths was a in those days it was district football, so yes. I was in the North District. Yeah. North District, yeah. So you just uh, started at Norths and went all the way through. Yeah, started with Norths and went yeah. all the way through and finished with them. Yep, well, one good. club player. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, moving through the grades, then you would have uh, started playing seniors uh, a few years after that. And um, can you remember the, the first time that you um, that you played A grade? So yeah, the first game A grade I would have played would have been in uh, 1956 I think it was yeah. uh, and I was uh, I played reserve grade and used to sit on the bench for the A grade so well you know sometimes you got selected to sit on the bench and sometimes you didn't but yeah <laughs> so I got selected to sit on the bench for the A grade and we're playing at the uh, Gabba in those days and uh, from memory, we were, we were playing uh, Easts, and uh, I got called up because somebody got injured and, yep. and uh, had to run on the field, which was a pretty scary at the time. <laughs> the old spine tingled when I had to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Um, so uh, that was good. Um, so mid year, when were you first picked for, um, for the A grade side? So in 56, you've been able to get on the field, but uh, it took a little while before you actually started there for good yeah um well 50 59 was the the year my year when i first started playing continuous uh a grade yeah right that's yep. right yep. yeah so um yeah yeah 50, 59 yeah okay so let's chat about that uh 1959 season so in 58 norths had, had done okay but didn't make the semi-finals uh so 59 started and um uh, fairly famous footballer Clive Churchill that came right. to the came to the northern suburbs of Brisbane uh, from South Sydney, and um, he changed things around. So all of a sudden, you were the minor premiers in in '59. Yes. Can you talk to us about um, that 1959 season? Just how the change was from '58 to '59. What what did Clive bring? Well, because uh, Clive arrived in Brisbane, and a great deal of fanfare, and rightfully so being the stature of the player that he was. And, of course, Nunda and around the northern the north area was just a buzz. We used to um, go training at night time. We used to train Tuesdays and Thursdays at nights and there was nothing to have, you know, four or 500 people coming just to watch us train, but really coming to see Clive Churchill at the yeah. end of the day. So well, they weren't really... coming to see Greg Fowler train. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I was over on the dark side of the field. I wouldn't have seen there. But, yeah, so, you know, the place really had a buzz and it really, as a player, really gave you that feeling of uplifting you and making you say, right, I've really got to do my best now because Clive's here, you know. And... Oh, that's great, yeah. Well, what about um, Clive? So... What was it like to have him at the club? So first of all, you've talked about the fact that people were a buzz and, and all that sort of stuff, but it, as far as football was concerned, what did he bring? Well, he, well, he brought a lot of knowledge, obviously, because he'd, uh, he was a very personable sort of a guy. He'd tell us all these stories about when he 
played over football overseas for Australia and, you know, and he's some of his exploits down in South Sydney and and uh, his knowledge about positional play, he, he tried to impart with us. So from a player's point of view, he was really, really a good coach. He's easy to approach. He, he never really sort of abused you or anything you did wrong, but yeah. he'd explain to you what he expected. And, uh, yeah, yeah, really, we really missed him when he went over to uh, coach the Aussie side later in the year. Yeah, so uh, my next question, you've kind of half answered that, was going to be what's he, what was he like as a coach? So yeah, talked about the fact that he was uh, fairly personable and, and more explaining than berating. Yeah, absolutely, he was. And um, as I said, he was, he was always one with a joke, so he could you know, keep everybody pretty calm. And when things started to get a bit tense, he'd come out and tell you some funny story or tell some sort of a joke and, you know, managed to settle you all down and so you'd really be listening to him. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, okay, we've talked, to, we've talked about him as a, as a coach, but Clive didn't just coach when he came up. He was actually a player coach. That's right, so, Yeah, so what was it like to play with Clive Churchill? Oh, it was really good because um, he'd come on the field and in those days Valleys were one of our big rivals and, of course, the fullback at the time was a guy called Norm, Norm Pope and because uh, Clive knew him from, you know, Popey, I think, played a couple of representative games, so Clive knew all about Popey and he'd come up with these moves where, oh, we're going to fix this Popey up, we'll give this high up and under. So when I say oranges, I'm going to kick it high and then you guys rush down and surround him so as soon as he gets the ball barrel him and all that sort of thing so um yeah in other words try and put him off his game so he'd do those sorts of things repeatedly till he'd upset Popey yeah I don't <laughs> think it would take much to upset Norm Popey <laughs> I don't think so no <laughs> yeah oh, that's good so um well Clive you kind of just uh, touched on the fact that at the end of the season Clive um left to uh travel with the kangaroos the uh, 10th Kangaroos, I think it was, over to England and France. And um, so he missed the last game of the season, I think, and then the semi-final run. Yes, he did. And um, fortunately, when Clive came to Brisbane, he brought with him a few players from South Sydney, Jack Coyne, Smiley Kirkman and Kenny Anderson, who are all really good players. And um, Jack Coyne was uh, an exceptional front row forward and Jack took over as the captain coach of the side at the time, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I was going to ask about Clive. Um, oh, sorry, not Clive, about Jack. And uh, and see, what was the mood in the camp like when um, when Jack took over? Like, was he as accepted straight away as... Well, there was there was a bit of a problem, like, in the early days when Clive Churchill came up here because Bill Pearson was our captain in 1958 yeah. and of course uh, when Clive arrived he appointed uh, Jackie Coyne as the captain and uh, the players I think just sort of felt that a bit hard, a bit harsh on Bill because he was such a, a good player himself and a loyal club man so it took us a little while to accept the fact that okay that, that's the decision and that's the way it is you yeah. know and then of course when by that time when Jack was uh, made the um, captain coach yeah, bygones were bygones, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, so, 59, Norths had won the minor premiership and uh, Clive had left for England with the 10th Kangaroos and in the space of a, a couple of weeks, Norths had lost their champion coach. They'd been beaten in the major semi-final by brothers. They had four players involved in a car accident, including the interim coach, Jack Coyne, and two of those four players, Huey Kelly and Lloyd Weir, were injured badly enough that it put an end to their season. That's right. Um, so being a prop and a second row forward, it meant that their whole forward pack was rearranged for the preliminary final. That's right. Yes, which included um, a, a new hooker named Greg Fowler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true enough. <laughs> so can you tell us about the loss of Clive, the semi-final loss to brothers, the car accident, and how that all impacted on the club? And well, then after you've done that, talk to us about how G Fowler came in to the preliminary and grand final team. Yeah, well, you know, because that was pretty tragic because we were all on a bit of a high thinking that we were going to do well with the, by the end of the year and hope, hopefully winning the premiership. And then to lose those players uh, under those circumstances was, was, was pretty tough on the team. But fortunately, the people who came in to play and replace them were all 
competent footballers themselves and yeah. um, really um, added a lot to the team at the end of the day, as it turns out. For me, I came into the team, uh, I got dropped for a semi-final, obviously for not having been a, playing so well. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and they gave another young guy a, a chance and he didn't seem to do any better than I would have done, so they put me back in. <laughs> okay, right. Oh, well. Good, so you managed to play that preliminary final and the, and the grand final again, which was, which was probably good. Can you talk to us about that uh, 59 premiership? Because... It was, uh, you know, like like we said, fifty eight. You didn't make the semi finals. You've you've been the um, minor premiers. You had a bit of a hiccup against brothers, but then uh, met them again and and had a win in the grand final. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, well, of course. You think back to those days. The players didn't really earn a lot of money unless you were a captain, coach like Clive Churchill was. But there again, I think he got a thousand pound for the year, which was probably fairly big money, but nothing like they get paid today, of course. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the old Norse old boys um, offered us £100 for each player, £100, if we uh, won the grand final. So that, that was a bit of an incentive for us <laughs> because none of us had ever received that sort of payments before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, so 1960 rolled around and, and Clive had moved on. Um, but uh, after the 1959 grand final... Um, Bob Bax, was, who was coaching Brothers, was told that he was no longer required at Brothers after five grand finals and two premierships in his time there. Um, and Norse were without a coach, and Bob Bax was a coach without a team, so put the two together. That's uh, right. Yeah, so can you talk to us a little bit about uh, about Bob Bax? Like, um, some of the things that I've read in the paper was that he had to leave Brothers because there was a language barrier with Brothers officialdom, Brothers being a Catholic uh, club, and even though Baxi himself was Catholic, his language at times was a bit blue. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I guess you could you could say that was the case. Now, um, he had a nice turn of phrase at times, Baxi, and <laughs> that was. But, but that was him. Once you got to know him, well, you just had to accept, hey, that's that's Baxi, you know. Yeah. Now, uh, there's other rumours going around too that at the time that they decided to dispense with his services because. In the 1959 grand final, they he didn't play three or four players that had had some injuries, and the committee felt that um, he should have he should have played them despite the injuries. The injuries weren't that bad that they shouldn't have played. So yeah. that's another story going around. So that he purposely lost the grand final, <laughs> and so putting himself in a position so he could come and coach Norse. Now, I don't know whether that's right or not, but <laughs> All right, that's okay. the rumours of the day. <laughs> right, OK. Well, I think that brother's team was uh, still a pretty good side, so I don't know why we want him to move there. But Oh, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, so, OK, well, let's move on to that 1960 season where Bob Bax is, uh, is coaching um, at Norths. Um, there was a couple of uh, a couple of incidents through the year, and we'll we'll get back to one of them a little bit later on. But um, there was uh, one game against um, Winner Manly at Oxenham Park that uh, that I think we need to have a chat about, uh, particularly Lou and Bob Greenhill and uh, those big Winner Manly forwards. Yeah, that, yeah, they were, and they were a pretty tough mob. Like we thought, we had some tough forwards, but they had some really tough forwards too. But. Uh, yeah, we're playing uh, playing uh, Winham at uh, Oxenham Park at Nunder, and uh, a bit of a blue, bit of a punch up happened on field. And of course, those days, probably much like it is today, was one in, all in, and so you had the whole twenty six players in there <laughs> swinging arms and probably not connecting. And uh, yeah, so and then we had the um, side, people from the sideline rushed in too to try and uh, oh, get into the the melee. And, yeah, so it was uh, they. they had to call on the couple of police officers there to try and quieten them down and settle. So the game was held up for five to ten minutes while that was all sorted out. Right. <laughs> Wild times. <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah. Um, so that 1960 season, um, you'd uh, given Valleys a good going over in the major semi-final with a win of 20 to nil. Uh, and then they beat West in the preliminary final to have another go at you in the grand final. And um, Norths won the game, but it was much closer, only 18-15. Can you talk to us about that final series and why those two games were so different? 
Yeah, well, when you think back of it, I don't know why that was that was so different. I suppose we went in with the feeling of, of probably a bit overconfident because we'd beaten them so easily the last time we met. Yeah. And there's maybe a little bit of complacency was there, but uh, yeah, other than that, I can't really put my finger on any other particular reason for that. The side was pretty well much the same, so yeah. yeah, yeah through through the a, year, it had been fairly tough um, encounters with Valleys, hadn't it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There were always tough encounters with Valleys. They were, uh, in those days, we used to say everybody hated Valleys, but then a few years later, everybody hated, hated Norths. Norths. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who's winning, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Baxi's uh, coaching 61 and, and continued, or 60, sorry, and continued through uh, 61, etc. Um, but he was really known for his, um, a little bit like uh, Henry Holloway in one sense, that where Henry used to say that premierships aren't won in February or premierships aren't won in March. And Baxi was a bit like that as well. He'd sort of set his season up and then go on this run of wins. Yeah, and, no, uh, Baxi was a real sort of a football psychologist, I think, it Say so, not that there is such a such a designation, I guess, but yeah, he he just knew how to you know talk to the players. He talked to individuals and explained what he didn't like about their game and what he did like about the game. And he used to have a sheet he'd put up on the wall after every game, outlining, "Hey, you've got to pick your game up because blah blah blah. You played well." And so, yeah, he he was he just had that happy knack of getting everybody together and. Um, in other words, making you know really good mates, and you yeah. sort of played for every for for each other. I know there's a cliche, but still, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit about that um, end of season run in '61. So '59, you'd won the minor premiership. Uh, 1960, Valleys won the minor premiership, but you were finished second on the on the table and and ended up taking out the grand final. But in '61, Norths were the runaway minor premiers. They'd uh, sort of taken all before them and then runaway winners of the major semi-final against Redcliffe and then pretty clear grand final winners against Valleys after that. Do you recall that 61 side and that run through the yeah, season? Yeah, well, that, that side we had a, a lot of younger players that, you know, that uh, stepped up to A grade from even as low as under-18s, you know, the Bates brothers and uh, people like that that, you know, really added to the team and... Uh, Ian Massey, he was another one. So yeah, because I think we had then we had the nucleus of the older players, but then you had these younger, keen yeah. players coming through, and they just fitted in so well and and uh, into the team. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's probably what it was getting those bit bit of new young blood in. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay, well that kind of makes a lot of sense because if we talk about today's game, Penrith is is an example of that where these new young guys coming in give you that impetus to um, take it through to the grand final or whatever else, and they almost did the job last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, that's good. Um, so my information also tells me that you um, that you played some rep footy. Uh, 1961, you played a couple of games for Brisbane? Yeah, I played a couple of games uh, for Brisbane. Um, played against Ipswich and I did play a game against Toowoomba. And that largely happened because there was a guy that played for Valleys called Bobby Gurkey. He was their hooker. Yep. And Bobby and I used to always have a great tussle in the scrum. Sometimes he'd beat me and on a lot of occasion I'd beat him. But he was one of those really good players. He, he seldom played dirty and we just sort of got on and did our job as, you know, the yep. winning the ball from the scrum. And Bobby uh, decided to take a contract with a Sydney club and... I was fortunately then the number two hooker in Brisbane, and so I got I got a run in the Brisbane side. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah, so Bob Kirky was um, uh, was Queensland hooker yeah, for a, yeah, for a few right. years there. Yeah, yeah. So in that um, nineteen sixty one side, you would like as you said, you played against Toowoomba. So we think about nineteen sixty more than sixty one, um, with a front row of Dud Beattie, Noel Kelly, and Gary Parcell from Ipswich. I know Noel Kelly would have moved down to West in Sydney. By 61, but you would have played against those other guys. Oh, yeah, Dud Beattie and Gary Parcell, and there was another guy called Jimmy Foreman. He wasn't a big bloke, but he, he was really tough and could tackle really hard. Yeah, so, yeah, that was a real experience, particularly being a hooker, and you've got to play against fellas like Dud Beattie, who were renowned for being able to, a great assistance to a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember I got picked in a 
Uh, we had a Queensland versus the rest side. And that, this was when Bobby, before Bobby went away and uh, Bobby Gurkey went away and we were playing and he was in the Queensland side and I was in the rest side, but he had Beattie and Parcel in his team. <laughs> and uh, then the second game they played, they switched it around and I got in there with Beattie and Parcel and that made a bit of a difference to me too. I could <laughs> win a bit more ball from the scrum. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing with those contested scrums, what That's a front right. row I can do for you. Yep. Yeah. So, um, also, uh, talking about rep footy, you played a, a trial in um, 1962 for Brisbane against Toowoomba. Yes. Um, and that didn't really work out too well for you. Uh, you it didn't work out very well at all for me because um, I dislocated my shoulder um, just in the second half of the game and uh, I was taken off the field. In those days, you didn't have a doctor with you. You had an ambo on the side. Uh, after a while, they threw me in the back of the ambulance and took me up to the Brisbane Hospital into the emergency ward there, where they kept me there for about probably over an hour with my arm dislocated before anybody came God. and helped me. So anyway, cut a long story short, what really happened as a result of all that, the ligaments were really stretched and torn. So um, eventually, they had a bit of trouble getting it back in, but eventually got it back in. And uh, yeah, after that, came back and played one game about six months later and dislocated it again. So I gave the so that was really the end of my uh, rugby league career then. Yeah, yeah. Injuries they can uh, yeah, injuries, they can do it yeah. to you, can't they? That's right. Um, so uh, I've been told I've been uh, given the word that I need to ask you about your Brisbane jersey and. Oh and well, that was of... when I dislocated my shoulder, and they took me up to the hospital, and when they eventually um, did come to see me, they said, "Oh, we got to have to cut that jersey off you to get your arm back in." And I said. No, you're not going to cut that off me. There's no way you can cut it off. You've got to pull it off you know, and take it off over my head. No, we've got to cut it. And I said, no, no, don't, don't cut that jersey. So eventually they managed to get it off me without cutting it. And uh, I took the jersey and socks home. And then about, oh, it was probably about a month later, I thought, oh, this is good. I've got a, a souvenir of that game anyway, number 12 Brisbane jumper. Uh, Albert Bishop, who was the president of Norse Club, uh, came and came round to my door at my home and said, "Oh, Greg, uh, you got your Brisbane jersey there. I got a, the BRL want it back." And I said, "Oh, well, they were going to cut it off me, but they didn't because I thought I could keep it." And he said, "No, I'm sorry, you can't." And I said, "All right." So I had to hand it. I oh. handed it back to him, and then about a week later. He come around again and he said, what about the socks? You got oh. the socks? And I said, well, you didn't ask me for the socks the first time. You only asked me for the, for the jumper. And he said, no, they need the socks too. So I had to hand my jumper and my socks back. Oh, Could no. you see that happening today? Uh, no. <laughs> I couldn't. Oh, that's a terrible story. Um, well, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> Uh, give Albert his due. Albert was a really I'm not I'm not rubbishing him. He was just doing because he was on the the committee of the BRL and he was just well. doing what they'd asked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, well, let's have a look at uh, at something that's also uh, been something for us with the podcast. So, to this point, when your interview goes to air, we will have been talking about uh, referee Don Lancashire. Um, he's we don't need to bore everybody during the interview with this story but basically he's been to Sydney come back to Brisbane and the Brisbane referees won't let him um, in to referee and we're going through that story now but before he went to Sydney he was refereeing in Brisbane and he would have refereed games that you played in. Oh he certainly did yeah yeah no I can remember Don uh, Lancashire uh, particularly because there was one incident again at Oxenham Park we were playing Wests and the score was 5 all with about a minute to go. And he awarded Wests a penalty right in front of the posts. In those days, Daryl Stevens was their goal kicker and he seldom missed his shots at goal. But for some reason, he missed this one. And we thought, yeah, well, we've won. But Don wasn't happy about that. He reckoned somebody moved behind the post. So he awarded him another kick after the siren had gone. And of course, he wasn't going to miss two in a row, was he? So they ended up winning 7-5. And if, and the spectators again at uh, Oxenham Park didn't really appreciate that and they rushed onto the field and there's a few punches aimed at him trying <laughs> because of his actions and at the end of the day, again, the police came on and had to shepherd him off the field and sort of escort him to his car after he had a shower and oh, goodness. so he could drive away so nobody could 
harm him. <laughs> Johnny Lancashire, always yeah, in the Johnny news, Lanc- apparently. Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> so I've also got it on pretty good authority um, that I need to ask you about uh, a competition that was run in Brisbane for the most popular hooker. Oh, yeah, that, that was in 1960. Uh, LJ Hooker, the real estate company, um, was part of their advertising campaign and approached the BRL and they put a voting slip in each of the, the BRL programs that you bought at the game and it was called the Popular Hook Contest and the idea was that people would write the name of the hooker that they thought was the most popular one, rip it out and there were ballot boxes at the ground where you um, put, uh, put your vote in uh, so that, and that went for the whole of the season and towards, well I think it was about a week to go there was a guy, his name was Billy Slady, you mightn't believe it or not, but he was uh, the uh, hooker for uh, Winner Manly. It was him and I, we were neck and neck all the way through for about the last month or so. And uh, it was quite obvious we were so far ahead of the rest as either he or I were going to win it. So Jackie Bates, who was my coach in 1958 when I first started playing A-grade, came into the dressing shed when we were playing Winham again at, at Oxnard Park and said, Hey, Billy Slater's happy to do a deal with you if you want to be in it and share the, share the, the, the prize. He said, because one of you are going to win it. There's no, no doubt about that. And I thought, being just married and the young son, I thought, oh, 50 bucks is better in the pocket than taking a chance on winning oh, the 100. 100 yeah. <laughs> so I said, yeah, righto. So we, after the game, we shook hands. And um, at, at the end of the day, I end up, I end up winning it. The prize was a hundred pounds for me and a hundred pounds for the club. And uh, sometime after that, like I honoured my deal with with Billy, I met him up at near Tritons in those days at the top of uh, Adelaide Street. We went in the pub up there, and I gave him his fifty fifty pounds, <laughs> nine pounds, and we were good mates. But then Albert Bishop again came me a month or so after that, and he said. I heard you shared the prize with Billy Slater. I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, what'd you do that for? And I said, well, it was clear there was only he and I who were going to be in it. And at that stage, he could have won. And so I would have had done that. That, that was it. And he said, oh, well, he said, unbeknown to you, I suppose, we had all these programs saved up with the, all clipped oh. out with your name on. So on the last day, we put them all into the ballot box. So I ended up winning pretty easily. <laughs> Well, good on Albert. He was looking after you, even he though was, he took he the was, jersey yeah. off you. But the most embarrassing part of it all was that when they made the presentation of the cheque to me, the person who presented to me was the then chairperson of uh, LJ Hooker, a guy called Sir Arthur Fadden. Now, Sir Arthur Fadden used to be the federal treasurer in a, in, a, in his day, and everybody hated his guts. And so when he was handing the cheque over, the whole crowd were going, boo, boo, boo. And I thought, oh, my God, I hope they're not booing me. I hope it's Artie that they're booing. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, so, Greg, let's uh, talk a little bit about Oxenham Park. Um, can you paint us a picture of what those suburban grounds were like? Like Oxenham Park, we don't even use for rugby league. No, anymore, no, so. but Oxenham Park, one of the biggest uh, disadvantages with it, it had this... Uh, cricket pitch right in the middle of it and a kind of yeah. turf pitch which of course uh, would be as hard as a rock and uh, if you got tackled on that and you knew you were tackled on it it was a gravel rash territory um, the grandstands there was one large grandstand there another wooden grandstand probably seat a couple hundred people then that around the perimeter of the grounds they had these open uh, grandstands with about probably eight steps up you know where the people sat to watch the game yeah. and then of course Everybody wouldn't fit in the grandstand, so they used to let them onto the... they put a, a rope up and then let people come and sit on the side or stand on the side of the ground. So, you know, people all around the, the grounds. Um, yeah, and that, that was pretty much the, there. And then, of course, there was Davies Park over at West End. Um, they didn't really have too many grandstands, but they had a lot of seating, you know, just seating around the around the park. It was a, a pretty good oval, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but most of the suburban ovals were pretty much the same you know that the standard wasn't real high in, in terms of and most of them did have cricket pitches in the middle yeah so the only time to play on them really was when it was wet <laughs> yeah that's right yeah i remember playing on a cricket pitch when i was a kid as yeah. well yeah well um okay so that's looking at suburban grounds where um we get that picture with the old wooden grandstands and 
you know, people sort of milling around the, the field. What about Lang Park? What was that like to play at? Well, Lang Park, the first time I played Lang Park was when I was still at, at school, when I was playing for Virginia State School, and um, this was before they even thought of developing it, and it was a, a field where they used to dump a lot of ash and everything and then put a little bit of turf over the top, so when you played there... The, the ash used to be coming through, so you'd get nice and scratched from that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, they built the um, stud building Lang Park and the, the ground. And in those early days, uh, we didn't, they didn't have proper dressing sheds there. They used to have a demountable hut up the, up the uh, brewery end of the ground be, behind the terraced um, stands that you used to sit on. And that's where we used to get changed. But then, of course, they had the Frank Burke stand that was... That was really nice, but the rest of it was just that sort of concrete seating. Just a, yeah, yeah, concrete yeah, seating, which yeah. I sat on plenty of times yeah. watching games when I was a kid, yeah. Um, what about uh, that? the situation at, um, at Lane Park? Like, when you would have been playing grand finals, uh, they would have still been packed. Um, what was it like running onto Lane oh, Park, yeah, no, that, even that was, in those days? Oh, it was just such a buzz, you know, like... Uh, you're probably talking 15,000 people or, more, or something like that, and you'd run on the field and the cheer, you know, you, again, the spine used to tingle and the yeah. head stand on the end. It was just, yeah, it was just so exciting and thrilling to be able to do that. It, it sort of made you feel a bit like a Superman. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, let's let's get back to the players uh, that you played with and against because uh, that's basically what our podcast is about. Um, there were plenty of guys who travelled through North's playing ranks in the early to mid-60s. Can you tell us, um, and we're just talking about that particular time that, that you were playing, can you tell us uh, who was the best player that you saw wearing the pale blue, navy and yellow of the North Devils? Yeah, well, I'd have to say Bill Pearson. Bill was, um, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a shining light. He was a, a tough player. He was a good player. And um, he'd always stand behind you if you needed help in any situation on the field. And he, you know, he could make a break, he could tackle, and he tackled really hard. And he got a lot of respect from the opposition when he was playing because he was a, playing 5'8", you don't get too many guys at 5'8", who were over six foot tall and yeah, yeah probably weighing about 14, 15 stone. That's yeah. right. Seeing pictures of Bill Pearson, he looks more like a second rower. Than yeah, he that's right. Well, he, used to, he started off playing centre yeah. and then uh, Baxi moved him into 5'8". Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, well, what about... Uh, the teams of uh, 59 through to 62 when you were playing, was there a guy in those in those teams that you gravitated to, like somebody that Greg Fowler and so-and-so just formed this good combination, either on or off the field? Uh, probably on the... As I said earlier with, with Bobby Gurkey, we, um, we had a lot of respect for each other as, as players and uh, we never got into any slanging matches and, and um, rubbish one another on the field, sledge or whatever... So, you know, that was always a nice... It was nice just to go in to battle without having to put up with all this other stuff, the sledging and the, yeah. you know, the hitting with the heads and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, all right, well, let's uh, continue with the, the theme of the players on the field. Can you talk to us about the best defender that you played with? Oh, here again, I think I'd... Uh, it's probably a bit of a hard one, but I'd probably say Bill Pearson, even though he was in the, playing in the backs, he was probably one of the best defenders in, that, yeah. that I played with. And then in the forwards, there was a guy called Dinger Bell who used to play second row for us. He was pretty ruthless too when he yeah. when he hit somebody, they knew they were, they were hit. Yeah. 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 Well, what about, was there anybody, and, and I've asked this of a, of a few different guys and, and some of them will just say, no, I wasn't scared of anybody. <laughs> but was there someone that you played against that you just thought, no, I really don't want to go that way? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there were some pretty, you know, because I wasn't all that big when I was playing, so there were some pretty big guys that um, were around... Uh, one guy in particular played for Valleys, a guy called Ray Paulson. He played, uh, yeah. not that I was really scared about him, but he no. flattened me a couple of times. And um, one time in particular when we were playing at uh, Lang Park, he uh, came and he dropped me with a stiff arm tackle and I was on the ground for a while, but I eventually played on. And Bill Pearson came up to me and said, don't worry about it, Greg, I'll fix him up. <laughs> so uh, next time uh, he got the ball... Pearson went bang and hit him. And, of course, 
Paulson comes up, swinging arms and everything, and the referee says, hey, that's enough of that, you know. Okay, a little while longer, same thing happens again, Pierce goes, whack, knocks him down. <laughs> Ray Paulson comes up swinging and swinging, and the referee says, that's two, third time, you're off. And, of course, inevitably... Pearson comes over with a big grin. Oh, got him, Greg. I got him. So, so next time he gets it, Pearson whacked him again, and this time nice and proper, and he got sent off. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, talking about players like Bill Pearson, I guess, um, that 59 grand final team that you played in was, was stacked with representative players, and it wasn't just the case in 59, and it wasn't just grand finals um, teams. Like across the park, whether it was your team or teams that you played against, did you ever run out thinking, holy cow, I'm playing with so-and-so or I'm oh, playing against so-and-so? Yeah, well, in, in particular, it was certainly when Clive Churchill yeah. came there to think that, you know, he was at the back, at your back there and calling the shots and so forth. And knowing that he'd, his prowess as a footballer playing for Australia and all that sort of thing, it just it just lifted your game, you know. Yeah, yeah so... Of all people that I guess I played with, who was an inspiration, he was probably yeah number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. good. What about uh, guys that you played against? Which guy stands out as being um, one of the guys who gave your teams a tough run? A uh, guy that uh, played for Brothers, Peter Gallagher. Yeah, yeah. Peter was um, yeah. He always I played against him in the junior grades too, and. Uh, he always he was always a tough guy and always gave you a run for your money and uh, at the same time, quite a he wasn't a thug or anything like that. He no. was just a good player and he just used to dish it up to you, you know. Yeah. And whatever he copped, he gave back. Yeah, yeah. So he was someone I always used to admire as a player and probably I did actually play in a representative game with him. So yeah. We, uh, at a South Queensland side, went and played North Queensland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, can you uh, tell us about who is the hardest player you have had to, you ever had to tackle? Oh, gee. Well, me being a little fella, <laughs> I never used to like tackling those real big guys, but, uh, you know, somebody like Ted Otago, who also played for Brothers, he was, yeah. Yeah, he was pretty tough to tackle. And, of course, I played against Brian Davies too, so he was, an, he was another one. That yeah. Were, yeah, so they were probably, for me, being in the forwards, that's where most of the action for me was far, was term, was, in terms of tackling was concerned, yeah, so all getting tackled. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, let's talk, leave the defence aside for a minute and talk about um, players with the ball in hand. Can we, We'll go through a, a, a team, so to speak. Talk to us about forwards that uh, either that you played with or against, and some of those blokes you've already mentioned would have been um, pretty pretty handy with the ball in their hand as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know Lloyd Weir, he was um, when he came to North, he was a, a a typical farmer guy, you know, you know, and uh, he actually probably Baxi was the one that really got him fired up to played the good football that he ended up playing so yeah he he was always he was one of those uh players that i'd put in the category that yeah i really enjoyed playing with lordy yeah and of course you know toughness of guys like jack Coyne and uh, uh ken anderson who used to play f- uh, halfback for us and even smiley kirkman you know they were they were yeah yeah you obviously enjoy playing with them and they were they were bits of larrikins at times but you know they're yeah. good blokes at the end of the day yeah that's good um, what what about halfbacks? Then you talk to us about um, Anderson. There, what what have you got uh, as far as guys who could really set up play around them? Oh well, of course Barry Muir, who played for West at the yeah. time. He, whenever you played West, they, they had him, and they had another guy called Alec Watson who played for Australia. He was playing centre, and they had a pretty good all round side. And um, they were, you know, they were one of the teams that. I used to think, oh, we're really going to try hard to beat these guys, you know. That, yeah. that of all the teams, they're probably one that I prefer preferred not to play rather than have to play because yeah, they, yeah, yeah, that's good. But, but Muir was a he was pretty magical as a halfback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we've read that, and we we actually had a a conversation about Barry Muir in our first episode. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Um, what about outside backs then, Greg? We're so we're still talking guys with ball in hand. 
and we've we've gone through the forwards, those power runners. Um, we've gone through the halfbacks, the guys who could set up play. What about those outside backs who could, you know, with speed and open field running? Yeah, well, with Norse, we had a guy called Norm Hines. He was he played centre. He was he was pretty swift, and because outside of him, we had Fonda Matassa and uh, in a few game, quite a few games. Uh, another guy on the other wing was Mickey Cox. So, yeah, they were all, you know, really good, swift players that could make a line break. And then, of course, then you had Harry Bates was uh, a full a full back, and he could chime into the back line, and yeah. uh, he was really good and had a bit of a side step. So, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, so, finally, you've mentioned a, a guy there um, that you played with, uh, the Golden Greek, Fonda Matassa. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, he was one of the greatest showmen going around. Uh, and uh, can you talk to us about, well, whether it's from Norths or anyone else, really, for that matter, but uh, someone who would give Fonda a run for his money as being a bit of a showman? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that's that's probably a bit tough. And Fonda was just so ahead, far ahead of most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, Ken Anderson, the, the guy who played halfback, he was he was a bit of a show per, showman too, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, other than that, you know, in terms of uh, characters, um, yeah. No, he couldn't go past Fonda. There was an instance of him when we were playing at uh, Lang Park. He teed somebody up to... Um, if He had a try scored against us to give him this big yo-yo that he'd made out of wood. It was probably about, you know, a foot long and they had it on a piece of rope. And so when the guy's coming in to kick, he just starts playing with this yo-yo. <laughs> Play with this yo-yo. <laughs> So he was a character. He was a character. There's always a story about him. We were playing at Oxham Park again. The crowd's on the sideline. Fonda gets a break, runs right down the sideline, scores a try in the corner. And he gets picks himself up. There's a young kid there, about 10 or 11. He says, don't go away, son. I'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's the type of guy he was. Yeah, he's a really funny guy. Excellent. Um, so... Uh, Greg, I know that a lot of our uh, listeners are actually younger than I am, and, and I'm a bit younger than you are too. So can you share with us some names of guys who um, shouldn't be forgotten? Like, as I said before, that the podcast is about celebrating the BRL. And as as we all get on in years, you know, that we kind of tend to forget the guys from those previous years. So who are some of those blokes who really we should be remembering from that time when you were playing? Oh, well, you know... It's the obvious ones like Brian Davies and um, uh, I didn't actually play against Duncan Hall, but there were, there were people like him. But, you know, just the players who didn't really have a lot of recognition at the time. There was a guy who played halfback for, uh, for, for Norse, Jimmy Hannum. Um, he was, you know, always worthy of, of mention and a great player. Uh, but, you know, fellas like Jackie Coyne, from my point of view. There was another guy that played with Valleys, Mel Hansen. He was a front rower. Yeah. He, was, he was pretty... He was, um, he's probably worth remembering. And, you know, you had those guys that played for brothers like Otago and um, uh, Probitz. Yeah. Uh, they were uh, some of them. And then, of course, you know, you got guys like Lionel Morgan that used to play with Wynnum. Who are outstanding players? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, there's probably probably hundreds of. There's probably quite a number of them that I just can't well, think that, of. Well, that, that, that's the, top the, of the head. Yeah, and that's yeah. the point of the podcast too that yeah. we're trying to um, just recognise yeah. that we had so many good players that yeah. were playing here. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because they didn't play in Sydney, they're not part of of the history that we're carrying with yeah. us yeah. in yeah. the game. So. Yeah, that was good. Um, well, let's try to narrow them down. Um, I've already asked who was the best player that you played with. So who's the best player that you played against? The best player I played against, eh? Okay. Well, I, th- I think I'd go with Barry Muir, really. Yeah, yeah. he was really good. But, but another guy, Frank Drake, he used to play fullback yeah. for, for South. He was, yeah, he was another really good yep. player that I played against and. Uh, Kenny McCrown is, yeah, yeah. There's there's a few of them, you know, but probably Barry Muir was, you know, was probably yep. the one. Yeah. Okay. 
What about if you um, project into future years um, after your retirement or indeed go back before you started playing, you know, guys you might have seen when you were a kid, um, who's the best player you've seen? Uh, Clive Churchill, yeah. my way of thinking, yeah, I used to follow him as a, as a kid. There was uh, Clive Churchill, another guy called Keith Holman, used to play halfback for New South Wales, yeah, I yeah. really liked them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Greg, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed chatting. It's uh, It's been a good one. I've, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed going back through those names, and most of those names I don't remember seeing as a kid, but I remember reading about, and it's good that you've been able to bring some of them to life, so it's been a, a really good chat. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. It was brought a lot of fond memories back to me too, so it's been a real pleasure. Thank that's you. That's good. Excellent. Hail the mighty tigers, giants in the gold and black. They'll stand tall to face the attack. For their feet and their smart and their tactics always pull the rest. Tigers for failures, the fittest and the best. Hail mighty tigers, hail mighty tigers. They'll never be to you for let us down. Hail mighty tigers, hail mighty tigers.